our esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, author of Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. If you read only one middle grade science fiction series that features some dinosaurs, a whole lot of action, uh, main protagonist of color, and um, had a second book just come out this month. You should absolutely read Dr. Hill Squad by uh, Daniel Jose Older. But if you read two middle grade science fiction action series with dinosaurs and protagonists of colors with the second book that just came out this month, check out Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. This first novel, uh, both are available in paperback, obviously. Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is also available in audiobook, and the ebook is free to download whenever you're listening or watching to this wherever fine ebooks are sold so download a free copy of banneker bones and the giant robot bees uh then come back and see me for banneker bones and the alligator people and the upcoming untitled uh third banneker adventure uh, for which you'll uh, you'll have money uh under the super secret pen name robert kent i've written the horror novel for young adults uh, all Together Now a Zombie Story, and All Right Now a Zombie Story, and then, of course, The Book of David, uh, which is a long, slow burn in the style of Stephen King. This is an adult horror novel about an atheist who buys a haunted house and then begins to receive religious visions involving flying saucers with a whole lot of profanity and just about every offensive thing you could possibly imagine. So if you're old enough to read such a book, check out the first chapter in the five chapter volumes of uh, the Book of David. The first chapter, the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching this or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, coming up on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast on Thursday, we're going to be chatting with literary agent John Rudolph. That's going to be an exciting episode, so make sure you come back on Thursday. You can keep up with the show and all of future guests at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, so come on, you can sign up for the newsletter if you uh, don't want to seek out new episodes. I'll email you once a month and tell you who came, so we'll save you some time. Uh, today, I am talking with New York Times bestselling author and uh, author of the Dacta Hill Squad, Mr. Daniel Jose Older. Daniel, how are you? I'm very well. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for uh, making the time to be here. Sure. Um, it's uh, thrilling to, to get to chat with you today. I'm, I'm, I know we're going to have a wonderful conversation. So why don't we uh, just start? I'm, I'm bad with summarizing people's bios and people's books. Uh, so if you would start just by telling the esteemed audience a little bit about yourself and kind of an overview of your career thus far. Um, sure. Let's see. Um, so I'm a New York Times bestselling author. Um, my YA series is called The Shadow Shaper Cipher. Uh, which is an urban fantasy series about a girl who brings murals to life by putting spirits into them. Um, that won the International Latino Book Award and was nominated for a bunch of others. I also have an adult urban fantasy series called The Bone Street Roomba that actually takes place in the same world as the Shadow Shaper Cipher, um, but it's adult with lots of all kinds of adult things happening and um, spirit warfare and uh, all kinds of, it's kind of like an epic fantasy series, but set in Brooklyn. Um, and that's... Uh, a trilogy with a short story collection right in the middle. And then I have a Star Wars book called Last Shot. It's about Han and Lando. And in November, um, I have a, an adult novel called The Book of Lost Saints that comes out. It's a kind of a Cuban family saga, drama, historical epic thing. And, and then The Dactyl Hill Squad, which is uh, why I'm here today, which is right. And I just put out the second book, Freedom Fire. And the third book comes out next year. And it's a historical fantasy series uh, set during the Civil War, but with dinosaurs. 
So you've just got uh, all kinds of books coming out uh, this year, and I'm assuming you'll be going into next year with, with more books yet available. You must be an incredibly prolific author. Thank you. I, I, it seems like I am. Sometimes I forget that, and then someone says that to me, and I'm like, oh, you're right. I guess I am. And I look over the, the course of my career, and I, I put out a bunch of books, which is really exciting. It's because I, lo I love writing. And something that, that struck me uh, that you said in, a, in another interview is you don't write every day. You think that's kind of a destructive mindset. I, I assume that's still true. Yeah. I mean, there's times when I have to just based on deadlines, but I don't I don't like it as a practice. Mostly, I mean, I don't you know, I think it does work for some people. I don't like it as um, the kind of like kind of the way it's usually given as advice is that, like, if you don't write every day, you're not a writer or you're not really committed to craft or any of that. And so when I'm on the speaking circuit or when I'm teaching, I really try to make a point of, of letting people know that I don't write every day. Most writers I know don't write every day. And, um, and I still manage to somehow, you know, be a writer and be pretty prolific. Um, I think it's important that we take days off and that we give ourselves breaks and that we recognize that people, some people simply cannot, uh, for various different reasons, write every single day. And, and there's still ways of being a writer or do whatever craft you do, you know, in spite of that. And that, that's been true my whole career. You know, I was a medic for the first couple of years of my writing career. I was working full time on an ambulance and I would work 12 hour shifts, you know, and I would not go home and write. Sometimes I would get some words in in between calls. Um, but again, like that's because I wanted to or I was on a deadline or something and I had to. But generally, if I was working, I would work and then I would go home and I would chill and rest or go out and party and come home. And then and then on my off days, I would try to get writing done when I could, you know. So on a day when, when you are writing, um, especially now that you're uh, Daniel Jose Older, New York Times bestselling prolific author, right. uh, what does your uh, writing day look like? Um, it's pretty simple. I think I basically will wake up, walk the dogs, eat breakfast, and start writing. Um, as that's what it comes down to. I try to, I kind of go by word count. So mostly not to like uh, beat myself up, but mostly just to keep track and to make sure that I'm like, moving on pace with myself. And so if I'm falling behind, it gives me a sense of that. Or if I'm ahead of schedule, it gives me a sense of that. In general, I'll try to hit a thousand words from my first writing session and a couple hundred or a thousand more for my second, you know, if I'm really like on a, on a schedule to, to get stuff done. And I do think writing rituals are really important. I think it's really important to set up your space in a way that's conducive to, to writing, but also just a pleasure. Like you should, it should be a, writing should be a pleasurable experience. You know, it's hard, it's work for sure, and that's important to recognize. But also, it's fun, and we love doing it. Hopefully, and that's why we're writers. So, you know, I do think it's really important just to sit down with intentionality and put on music that you like, and really choose your playlist thoughtfully, and make a cup of coffee or tea or whatever it is that your beverage is. Um, and and I find that that really makes a difference. You know, when the, the times when I just sit down, I'm like, all right, I got to get something done and I just jump into it versus the times when I really like take the time to, again, not like take hours and hours to set up the space. The space is already set up, but just make sure that I'm, you know, easing into the process, um, I think is really helpful. So I've been uh, kind of toying with this idea that the ritual and getting started, because I, I think that uh, reading uh, is a form of hypnosis because, you know, you're staring at words on a page and you read enough of them and pretty soon you're in that world uh, and, and then stories occurring all around you. And I find the same thing happens when, when I'm writing very deeply. I, I've forgotten everything else around me until my writing is done for the day. And I, I tend to think of the getting a cup, cup of coffee and making sure that the right song is playing that corresponds to the uh, the, the the book that I'm working on 
sometimes kind of like the uh, passes of a hypnotist watch and get me in that trance and, and prepare yeah, me for that absolutely. state. Sure, definitely. So what, uh, and we're going to talk uh, about as, as many things as I can pick your brain about. We're going to talk about your books, uh, esteemed audience. If you stick with us, I promise I'll ask him about Star Wars. Uh, but first, I want to ask you about your 10 years. Uh, it's 10 years, right, as a, in the back of an ambulance as an EMT? What uh, does that bring to your uh, fiction, that experience, especially when you're writing so much about death and spirituality and the afterlife? Yeah. Well, I think when, when you work in emergency services or particularly in emergency medical services, um, you develop a relationship to death that's not what most people's is because it becomes a part of your everyday life in a very real way. And, um, you know, I, I, I would I, ultimately, I think you make a certain piece with it. You, you have to kind of, hard to describe, but you have to kind of like recognize it for the power that it is you know you can't like a, a medic and a doctor any of these folks out there um we're not gods you know and we don't really have the power of life and death at our hands we can put it off for a while sometimes um but ultimately it's very humbling to be in a field where people are dying in front of you um because you know you know you can go through the protocol and you can get that iv and get everything into it on the time you know in time and everything else and and the person might still not make it, you know, you, you, and that's just the reality of the situation. And so what that means is not that like, it's not worth it. Cause of course you might actually bring them back. And many times we do. So you put everything you can into it, but ultimately, you know, you know, it's, it's really in God's hands. And um, that is humbling and peaceful and something to really reckon with. And in 10 years you do reckon with that, you know, that's part of the process, but you're also, sorry. Um, but you also go through it knowing that, like, having really played your part in a situation, having really contributed to someone's healing process as much as you can, transforms your experience with that. So you're not, um, it's very different than if you were just, like, witnessing something terrible happening, right? Um, that's, like, one particular relationship to trauma. But if you're actually involved with, invested in trying to make something better, trying to heal somebody, um, then you walk away cleansed in a certain way of the, the residual trauma of being around so much pain. We've got guest hosts today. That's great. We'll get a little tour here of, uh, know, of right? where you're at today. Right. How's this? Nice Perfect. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah, um, that's been my basic philosophy around it, and it certainly has led to um, a deeper understanding, I think, of life and death for sure, and but also an understanding of, you know, how systems work. And I mean, medics have a much uh, deeper relationship to any given city that they work in than most people do too. And so, you know, we see the underbelly of it. We're in the train system and the sewers and the high rises and the hotels and the hospitals and the prisons and the courts and the government offices. We're literally everywhere, anywhere that a person can be, we have to be able to access it because that person can die. And so we see a whole lot, uh, both of, of humanity and of bureaucracy. And um, that's definitely been an underlying theme of a lot of my work. That makes sense. That would give you an absolutely unique perspective that most people could never uh, hope to have because you can go pretty much anywhere. Exactly. 
Yeah. Right. And so um, I'm assuming that other than and metaphorically, you, you don't think that uh, you can bring spirits back um, uh, through through a, a different form of art like the, the Shadow Shapers do. Um, but do you have a, a thesis in mind for what happens after this life? Do you have some sort of uh, solace that you don't need to worry about that as much? Or does it just make you more immediately focused on what you have in front of you? Because any day you could be the person that, that makes that call. Oh, well, my spiritual practice, you know, we deal very um, explicitly with ancestors. So, um, you know, there's an altar up in my house for, for my ancestors. And when I cook, they get food. And when I make coffee, they get coffee. Um, so, you know, my relationship with the den on that end is, is a very healthy and, and um, harmonious one, which is, that's my philosophy around it too. And that is a lot of my, um, that goes into my work a lot. You know, like, it's, it's, really, it's always really struck me just how negative, and how almost explicitly and solely negative um, a lot of the Western canon in particular is with its relationship to the dead. Like they're almost exclusively just trying to kill us and like get revenge for something. Um, but that's not my experience and that's not a lot of people I know's experience with the dead because you know our ancestors have gotten us here and fought so that we could have what we have and lift us up on a regular basis and we you know we work with them and meditate with them daily. So I wanted that on the page. I wanted a kind of a reclamation of the ghost story to um, to be something potentially more uplifting. Well, since we're uh, on the topic, we're going to talk uh, explicitly about Dak the Hill Squad because I've, mm -hmm. I've just read it. I'm very excited and I want to discuss that series with you. But let's just talk briefly about Shadow Shapers since we're kind of in that territory yeah, already. Sure. Uh, if you give us just kind of give us themed audience kind of an overview of the series and what they can look forward for the uninitiated who, for some yeah. reason, waited to get involved. Yeah, Shadow Shaper, the Shadow Shaper Cypher, it, it focuses on Sierra Santiago, who's a 16-year-old girl in Vista, Brooklyn, um, in the midst of, of gentrification and all the other things happening in Brooklyn right now, um, who's a mural artist and finds out she's part of this spiritual legacy called Shadow Shaping that has essentially been denied to her by her um, kind of patriarchal grandfather, who was in charge of the old school crew of Shadow Shapers. And shadow shaping basically means that you can bring spirits in and put them into a work of art that they then kind of imbue with their spirit. And then the art itself goes in and whoops bad guys butts on your behalf, basically. Um, so she ends up initiating her whole crew as the new generation of shadow shapers. And the series follows all those friends and her family members as they um, go through different adventures and essentially fight for their legacy to survive because of course there's some nefarious um, other kinds of magic at play in Brooklyn uh, that they have to fight off in order to get through. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's pretty much it. That's what it comes down to. So, and, and real quick, the, the Shadow Shaper is the first book. There's two novellas that a lot of people actually don't know about. Um, a novella, of course, is a, you know, like a shorter novel, hundred pages um, that you can get on ebook only. Uh, one is, they come in between books one and two. So Ghost Girl in the Corner, Follows T and Izzy, two of Sierra's really good friends through a kind of a cold case murder mystery that they get involved with. And then uh, Deadlight March is about her brother Juan and some of his stuff because he's in a band and her and, and a couple of the characters. And they lead up to book two, Shadow House Fall. Um, and then the third and final book comes out January 1st. Uh, it's called Shadow Shaper Legacy. Can you give us a little tease of what we can look forward to? It is definitely a, a finale. It's a grand finale. Um, all the elements that have been building throughout the series really do come to a head. And Sierra it really has to um, step forward into her, into her legacy on, on a whole other level, uh, which includes reaching backwards. So it actually, what was really the most fun part about that book in writing it, the whole book is really fun. But writing it, I, there's, 
a lot of sections that are actually shadow shaper lore. And so it gets into the history of where shadow shaping came from and its roots and the, the whole the whole shebang, which was really fun. So it, it was really a, a tying together the past and the present in a whole new way. So what's the, I wanted to ask you about those novellas. What's the challenge of um, writing novellas that are obviously connected to the larger whole, but I'm assuming part of the reason you want to do that is so you can explore these characters in exactly. more depth than you have time within the, the main story. Do you have plans for more novellas uh, after the fact or? You never know. Not not active plans, no. Because with book three, it really just ties it up so nicely that it's almost like, eh, you know, certainly some could come out, but uh, I have no plans for any. But you're right, it is really fun. The other thing about book three is that's the first full-length novel where we get into different points of view characters. Up to that point, it's always been Sierra for the first two novels. Uh, but now we explore what's going on with T, what's going on with her brother Juan, and we follow some of their threads throughout the novel. So that kind of gives us a chance to check in with different parts of the shadow shaping world. If you would, a uh, question I'd like to ask people that have, that have had a lot of success in this business, because you know, the primary audience for the show is is authors and publishing professionals, yeah. uh, as, as well as Daniel Jose, all of our fans uh, today. Uh, if you could kind of uh, let us live vicariously through you for a moment. Uh, cause Shadow Shaper as uh, a New York Times bestseller, I think uh, was it Publishers Weekly, uh, made it the best book of the year. It was nominated for several other prizes. What is that experience like when you have a book and a series that just blows up like that? Oh, thank you. Um, man, it's, it's, very, it's a very complicated set of emotions. I mean, obviously it's really amazing and exciting. I think one of the hardest things to do as an author is manage expectations and I still don't really know how to do that. I don't think any of us really do, you know, because you're constantly trying to find the balance between like, just like wanting the best and also just wanting like whatever you can get. And then, you know, just sort of being excited about good things happening and not knowing where to place those good things on the scope of your larger career trajectory. Um, and so I think like, it's, it's sort of constantly a question of like uh, really just living in the present and understanding that each moment is special for itself and trying to also work, figure out, you know, how do they fit into um, the arc of my career and where I'm going from here and everything else. And with Shadow Shaper, you know, it's my first book. So, well, it's, it's the first book I wrote. It was the second or third book that came out, um, depending on how you're counting. Um, so I was, I was pretty brand new with it all and I had no idea what to expect. Um, so it was all very like huge. It also was a slow burn type of book. It didn't come out and it wasn't like a blow up book that just came out the gate with exceptional sales or anything else. It didn't have a huge amount of marketing behind it. It was a book that, um, I think people really got behind on the strength of my own online presence and what I've been talking for a long time, which was about, um, you know, different questions of race and equity and publishing and stuff like that. And then the book itself, which people, you know, just loved and, and, and were excited about. So it like it didn't hit the times list until months after it came out. Um, and those awards all came, all the nominations and stuff all came much later. So it, it's and I think that's an important that's kind of the takeaway from it for me is that like publishing and I know all of your writing um, audience knows this publishing puts a lot of emphasis on that first week and it is a really important week that's the easiest week to hit the um times list in some ways because you have all the all the pre-sales going for you and so they really emphasize that um but i think it's a somewhat misplaced emphasis um it really publishing like so many things really is much more of a marathon than a sprint 
And it, it can be very detrimental to look at it as a sprint because you will throw all of your energy into one thing. And then if it doesn't come out the way you hoped, feel incredibly like you've wasted a lot of time. And the truth is, you know, you have to look at your whole career and you have to look even beyond that at the lifespan of a whole book. And in those regards, like longevity is actually more important to me anyway than sudden bursts. You know, there'll be books that explode and you never hear about a year later. Um, what I'm most excited and happy about with Shadow Shaper is that it's had, it has very long legs and it has a lot of durability. And I still get, you know, calls to do um, work around it, even though it came out four years ago, you know, and that's, that's what I'm really most proud of. But that's something that it, it's hard. It's not as exciting. You know, it's not, it's not sexy, like hitting the New York Times list right off the bat, which is awesome. And I certainly don't disparage that in any way and and i certainly you know we all want that that's important too and that helps have give a book long legs i think i just want people to understand that like careers are and books themselves are just long and complicated and weird things and there's lots of different angles and stories it's like the story of your career is a story unto itself and that's the story you're always telling and if we approach it creatively instead of feeling beaten down by it um, or just feeling like it's totally in someone else's hands, it can actually be very um, inspiring. Thank you. That was a, a nice moment, I think, for all of us to go, ah, we may or may not get to the top of the mountain, but Daniel Jose Older has been there and, and he's back to, to share the experience with us a little bit. Uh, just a couple of uh, more questions about uh, Shadow Cipher, and we'll, we'll move on to Dr. Hill Squad. Yeah, sure. uh, but I did want to ask, how much planning did you do into the series up front? When you finished book one, did you have a clear plan for book two, book three, plus two novellas? Or No. I didn't. I, I, well, first of all, I, I wanted it to be a series when I first wrote it, but it was my first book, and Scholastic is kind of tough on this. They weren't. They just didn't want it as a series right off the bat. So they bought it as a single book and I think it was kind of like a cautious, we'll see how it does type of thing. Um, and I was like, okay, fine. So it's one book. Um, in, in, my, in the back of my mind when I was writing it, I was very conscious that it may or may not become a series. And that means that it does, I think that does affect, you know, how you end a book. Um, I don't like major, uh, excuse me, I don't like big like cliffhangers, but I also don't like extremely tidy endings either. So I think everything I write could kind of work towards the series potentially, because that's just how I like endings is in that there's certain openings for more or not, you know, that just works for me. Um, so with Shadow Shaper, it's similar, you know, um, I think that ending allows for more possibility. It's, it's really a beginning in a lot of ways, but it's a satisfying conclusion unto itself. And that's kind of the sweet spot, you know, so but once it was clear that they were buying two more books and then two novellas, um, then it was like, okay, now we need a, a more of a trajectory. I'm not an outliner or a pre-planner in any way, but I do have a sense of like large arcs of where things are going sometimes. So, but it's a very broad stroke type sense, you know? So I really had no idea what book two was going to entail and certainly not book three. I did know that the thread that I wanted to pull was the, in the characters of the sorrows. Um, and the sorrows are kind of the ones pulling the strings behind everything. So the primary bad guy is Dr. Wick. But when we find out over the course of the book, spoiler, that the sorrows are really the ones controlling him and with all the power. And, you know, so that, that left me an opening to kind of develop some more in terms of the antagonism. And really, I think the best thing about writing more books in a series is that you get to expand on the world. Because I love world building. That's like my favorite thing. So um, 
you know, you just get to build and build and build and go outward. Uh, uh, books should always be expansive as we go outward, I think. Like the, you know, as the stakes obviously get higher with each book, also we learn more about the world and, and the history and all that other cool stuff. And you don't have time to put that into book one usually. You know, usually you have so many ideas about the world and you end up having to chop all of them out. And now it's like, here's an opportunity to just have more and develop it further. And that's how I looked at it. It's an exciting opportunity. And, and it paid off because, um, again, like it let me get into all this folklore stuff by book three that I never would have gotten to if it hadn't been there because it just didn't fit into the series until now. And now it's like it fits in perfectly because it's the third book is really this combination of so much stuff. So it makes perfect sense to bring in the historical aspects and see how they tie into the present day stuff. Sounds to me like maybe after uh, book three is another colossal success for you. Eventually, down, down the road, once you've finished a couple of other things, you, you might could come back. We'll see. We shall see. I'm, I'm hoping, yes. Uh, one more question uh, about Shadow Shaper, and then we'll talk middle grade, because I, I know what podcast this is. But uh, I've got you here. It's, it's, it's so cool to be able to talk to you about a series that, 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 that I enjoyed so very much. Um, I noticed that uh, all the words uh, that are in Spanish throughout the story, there's a lot of uh, Spanish words, uh, mm -hmm. are not in italics. And you've got a video in which you discuss that, a short video that I absolutely love. So I'm really just hoping that you'll reiterate what is the reason that those Spanish words are not in italics? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, the main, the main idea behind that, um, thank you, by the way, is it's really, it's about kind of understanding the way that bilingual people talk. I mean, I think that's the best way to really look at it. And, and language is really meant to help for clarity and, and readability and understanding. And when you italicize a word, what you do is point out how different and important it is and make it jump out, really make it like do something different. And when bilingual people speak in, in both languages, they don't emphasize the, the change in language. So it reads really false to have an emphasis with a different language when really what there is is flow. And what italics do is destroy that flow um, very specifically. So to me, it, it just feels really cheap and kind of othering to follow this really archaic rule when the truth about language is that it, it's always growing and changing based on how the world really, really works. You know, language is a, um, an imperfect art and it's in constant motion. It's very fluid. And, and, and that's what I love about it. You know, so it seems really clear that there's no reason to italicize. Now, there are times when italics are important like if you're emphasizing you know a word or if someone doesn't speak the language well it's going to sound different and it will sound emphasized somehow if they're switching back and forth but for bilingual characters speaking you know in spanish and that's not to mention that we have this very corrupt idea of language as something that can be a perfect thing right when the reality is that all language is a big hodgepodge of lots of different elements thrown in there's so many spanish words in english and vice versa and uh, all kinds of other things. And that's what language is. It's something that comes with fully packed bags. And so it gets sort of ridiculous when, when, he, when, when does a word fully become English? And then, you know, that's a, that is a fluid thing into itself. So if we can agree that language is fluid, then why would we stick to some rule that makes things really um, unreadable to me anyway? I know you're a big believer in uh, when you're when you're drafting, when you're getting that first uh, draft on paper, just get it, get it down, get the story out there. Yeah. At what point do you start obsessing over and, and refining your language? Because your books are beautifully written. So I know at some point you come back in there and you polish and, and fine tune pretty hardcore. What does that process look like for you? 
Um, I do try to read all my books out loud before I send them. I don't always have a chance to do that, and that's the way of the beast. But um, that is something I recommend to everybody is that you read out loud. Or if you have someone, you know, handy that can read it out loud to you, that's also really helpful. Um, but it, at the end of the day, it's, it's a sonic art form. And we don't always understand it that way because when you read, you often read silently, and but you're still hearing the words in your head. And ultimately, the sound of the words does matter um, incredibly to whether or not writing works. And so if we understand that to be true, you know, we, we that's how you know that you really do have to hear it um, one way or another. Makes sense to me. And I uh, had the pleasure, I was uh, listening to the audio book uh, over this uh, past weekend here while uh, rereading parts of uh, Dr. Hill Squad getting ready to go for today. And it struck me that there's there's a very similar DNA. I mean, they're, they're, the, the styles are obviously different. One's young adult, one's middle grade. Uh, but there's, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a, there's a similarity, I think, almost to the relationship between uh, Magdalene and Two-Step that as there was to Sierra and, and, and Robbie, or maybe I'm just making that up. But it felt like there's there's a little bit of that Daniel Jose older DNA between the the two series, which will be our transition to uh, sure. talking about Dactyl Hill Squad. Am I way off the mark there? Was it? I said, am I way off the mark, or is there oh, an intentional that is not similarity? That never occurred to me in any way. I mean, this the series have things in common for sure, but that particular relationship is not one that I ever would have compared to those two. But I'm totally open to hearing your thoughts on it. That's fascinating. What's uh, let's hear about Dacto Hill Squad. Tell the esteemed audience about the series and the, the second book that's available this month. Yeah, so uh, Dacto Hill Squad is is uh, set in 1863. Starts in New York City um, in July, which for those history buffs out there know that is um, exactly when three actually gigantic occurrences in the course of the Civil War happened: uh, Gettysburg and Vicksburg. The both ended uh, as Union victories. And those actually both ended on the 4th of July. And then right around that same time were the famed uh, New York draft riots, um, which were a lot of the pro-slavery elements in New York and in the North in general, uh, resisting, violently resisting uh, fighting in the war, essentially by targeting their ire at the draft houses and at the black neighborhoods of, of New York City. So we meet our uh, protagonist, Magdalise Roca, at the Colored Orphan Asylum, which was a real um, institution back in those days. Um, mind you, there's dinosaurs running around in the street. I guess that's important. <laughs> but it is a fantastical version of 1863, where there's dinosaurs everywhere. And Magdalise, who's always loved dinosaurs, but never had a chance to really interact with them, realizes that she has this incredible and magical power to connect to dinosaurs with her mind, that they understand her thoughts and essentially do what, what she wants them to do and that she can understand their thoughts. They don't speak in English, but she understands what the sounds emotionally mean. Um, and so she develops this connection on the very night of the, of the New York draft riots, comes back to the orphanage to find it burnt to the ground, which really did happen. Um, the rioters burnt an orphanage with several hundred children inside to the ground. They all escaped except for one um, in real life. In, in this version of the world, they have a brachiosaurus that they've um, commandeered from the fire department who didn't need it anymore and because Magdalise has this special power they're able to get away to Brooklyn where a lot of um, folks of color actually did escape to during that time and there they fall in with a community of different um, organizers and freedom fighters uh, based on real people from that era um, and sort of become spies 
and different um, workers within that movement um, flying around on pterodactyl back and stopping slavers in the New York Harbor and having all kinds of adventures. And then eventually you come down south into the actual middle belly of the Civil War um, in book two, Freedom Fire, which, which just came out because um, they're trying to find Magdalise's brother Montez, who was a Civil War soldier and was wounded in battle and seems to be missing in action. So with this one, did you know going in that this one would be a series where you could you could yes. plan it ahead of time? Yeah, this is definitely going to be a series. Um, there was no way to make it not a series. It was just, it's a big story. Yeah, no, you've bitten, it was intimidating just to see what all you'd written. It was, oh my God, look at all you've bitten off to shoot. The, the research alone of not only having to know all the dinosaurs, because I'm uh, a good friend and a, a, a critique partner of mine is Laura Martin, who wrote the Edge of Extinction series. Yeah. And it's just dinosaurs here in Indiana. You've got not just dinosaurs that you have to research, but also the Civil War. So let's start right there. How much, uh, how much research did you have to do to get this done? It was a lot of research. It was a lot of research, but what happened was I kind of fell in love with the research part of it, as often happens. And so it just became like pleasure reading. I really spent most of my focus on the Civil War because the dinosaurs to me were, I did research them. I would like your audience to know. I definitely researched <laughs> them. Um, but to me, the dinosaurs are the, are the fantastical aspect. They're also the aspect that we, you know, there's lots of speculation and there's some information, but there's a whole, there's a lot more that we don't know than that we do about dinosaurs. And that's sort of why they work as a fantastical element is that, you know, the truth is we can take a lot of very educated guesses, but there's a whole lot that we don't know and we'll never know about how dinosaurs really lived and existed in this world. And, and so I use that to kind of have a good time and, and create this world that had, you know, different, different elements and different creatures and things like that. Um, that would just allow me to really let my imagination run wild and I could decide, you know, would a triceratops be a good uh, beast of burden and, and why? And what are the different elements and the behavioral aspects? So that part I, I took more as fun and fantastical. And I really um, leaned into the historical aspects of the Civil War period, in part because I thought that, that was what really drew my fascination. And that's one that I think we need to do a different kind of archaeology, not the dinosaur kind, but to really recuperate a lot of the amazing stories of particular heroes of color who have not really had their day in the history books, mostly because, you know, white supremacist history tends to ignore um, a lot of the heroic acts that, that folks of color have done. And so just reading about all these amazing, you know, people who did amazing things and, and realizing that I had no idea about any of them. I hadn't heard about them. You know, they don't have statues up. They don't have buildings named after them. Um, but people who own human beings do, you know, and I felt like that's a really um, terrible way to have history be told is through the eyes of the people who owned other people. Um, and so I really wanted to uplift some of these stories that we don't hear as much. It's a great vehicle because, you know, the, the, the younger readers will come in because the, the dinosaurs are consistent throughout. There's lots of great action, but they're also getting the history along with it. Right. And it doesn't feel like slow the, slow the fun down so we can get the history of there. Right. It's just it's exactly. within the story itself. Exactly. And it's the, the main force of antagonism. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that because some of the stuff is a, a little bit grim. Um, and of course, uh, our children who are alive today in, in, in 2019 America are, are living through some relatively grim history. Um, but, uh, you know, they're, you're, you're never going uh, full on present the, the, 
the full horror uh, of war exactly, but you don't completely shy away from it either. I mean, they come across um, the, the slight spoiler, the hanging body of someone who sang to them back at the orphanage. And, and so there is that grimness. How did you, how were you able to counterbalance that and, and keep the narrative mostly fun? Because it is mostly fun, middle grade adventure, but still stay true to that, the grimness of history. Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly the challenge of the whole series for me. And I think the only answer is like, you, you know, I think every writer writing about anything um, with any degree of heaviness is always trying to find that balance. And for every writer, it's going to be different, which is good. I mean, I think what we need in the world and particularly in literature is to have lots of different stories that deal with the difficult truths in different ways, you know? And so I think we, we need those stories that are just about that heaviness and that, um, and oppression and survival. Um, but that can't be the only narrative that we weave about history and about particularly about histories of color, um, because then it, that, that becomes a singular narrative, you know? On the other hand, I don't think we can ignore it. You know, I don't think we can just tell these stories that pretend everything is great and everyone was happy and we all got along and America is just one big happy family with no problems, because that's a lie. That's not true. And what, one thing that literature can never do is lie to you. Uh, but it has been for many, many years and many generations weaving that false narrative. Um, so for me, it was about finding a balance sort of between those two things, which isn't to say that like, oh, take a little bit of both sides. It's more to say, how do we weave a fun adventure story and still tell some difficult truths about the world? Because that's what, what people had to live through, um, but not get stuck on those moments and, and, you know, but still make them matter and give them importance. Um, that was really a question that I asked myself is, is, is how to do that and, you know, not tell a lie, not sugarcoat it and, and not, but also not traumatize the reader, which doesn't do anybody any good either. And so the best way I can tell you that I found is that I, as that I kept asking myself that question and I continue to throughout the process of writing the series is that it's always, it's always about constantly checking in both with myself, with my beta readers um, and, and trying to make sure that I'm hitting that balance right. And that's uh, just like that's going to be different for every writer. It's also going to be different for every reader. And there's certainly going to be people that feel like it's too much or it's not enough. Um, and I recognize that, you know, I think that's part of why we need a multiplicity of, of books dealing with history, honestly, out there. Um, and we haven't had that yet. So I think of Dactyl Hill as part of that continuum, um, you know, of, of, of telling an honest and fun story at the same time as best as we can. Um, but a lot of that does come in like, I think honoring the, the challenges that the kids are up against, um, not just letting it all slide away. So while the story is very fast paced and things move quickly and there's a lot of adventure and excitement, um, they also still deal with the real world consequences of, for instance, what it means to, to shoot somebody, you know, what it means to be involved in a gunfight or, you know, be involved in a moment of historical um, relevance. Like it's not all fun and games and it's not all like, yeah, we did it. You know, there's there's really heavy stuff that that entails and that that's stuff that you have to deal with long after the echoes of all that gunfire have died down. Um, you know, and there are still light moments amidst that and people find ways to to have victories and to get through and be friends, you know, and, and be human beings. It's such a wonderful scene. I, I, I never want to spoil for the uninitiated, uh, but when a character uh, shoots another character that really kind of has it coming, um, but then <laughs> it's not just the end of the chapter and then we move on like, ah, bad guys get killed. That's the end. There really is that trauma that carries through and, and, and creates a real character. No question there. Just just praise for the novel. <laughs> appreciate that. Let's uh, talk about world building because um, right away something struck me is, okay, well, 
the, the premise is there are still dinosaurs in the world and you move all the way to the Civil War. Uh, so did you, when you were planning the story, did you have to go back and think about all the, the things that would have been impacted by dinosaurs, how that would change the world? How much time did you spend on that? Or was it a concern since you knew you had a tightly focused narrative within this? Yeah, I kept it pretty tight. Um, it really only comes into play, actually it comes into play interestingly in the third book um, when they, we, there's a character who lived through the Battle of New Orleans of the War of 1812, which interestingly enough did not happen in New Orleans and did not happen in 1812. But there you have it. That's how weird history is, right? Um, but anyway, so that was, you know, back a while before the action of the events. And so it, I just looked at it as sort of a fun assignment to consider how different world events might have been impacted by dinosaurs, but I wasn't trying, I didn't want to go too deep into the rabbit hole of like, how different would, you know, all these major events have got the assumption of the book of the series and of the world building is essentially that everything has stayed pretty much the same, um, but there's dinosaurs. Otherwise it, it would just go, it could go in so many, way too many different directions. And I really needed the world, don't you start. Don't you start fussing. Sorry. I really needed the world to kind of be what very recognizable besides the dinosaurs aspect. Um, otherwise, okay, I got this pop up here now. Here we go. Our they, guest star. Hello, puppy. She needed some shine. Um, yeah, I wanted the world to be very recognizable, in part because I knew there was this major fantastical element coming in, and to ground it as much as possible in the, the elements that feel real um, was really going to matter, so that the dinosaur stuff would be more believable. Of course, that also opens up the possibility for... Um... Uh, potential future novels that are um, sort exactly. of related, but not really, with, where you can go oh. to all kinds of periods in history and, and yeah. give us more history and more dinosaurs. Are there plans to do that, or is it just an open uh, door at this moment? but you never know. I'd love to see how that impacts the Coliseum. That's, <laughs> I'd love to see uh, folks stuck fighting dinosaurs. That's just right. me. Um, okay. Another question I, I had for you uh, about the series is, well, let's, let me ask you this. What was your, what's your favorite dinosaur theme story that you didn't write? Where did you draw most of your inspiration and love of dinosaurs from? Oh, man. The, uh, sure. I forgot the guy's name. Uh, there's a series. I think it's called, it's not East of Eden. It's Eager Guy. I read it when I was a kid. Uh, Harry, I want to say Harry Harryhausen, but that's not it. Man, I, I, I'm terrible. I don't have the name off the top of my head, but there is this, this adult fantasy series um, that's kind of like if the dinosaurs lived, but it's like primitive men back in the day type thing. And I, I don't even remember it that well. I remember loving it when I was a kid and being kind of fascinated by it because it was definitely like above my reading level. Um, certainly that, certainly um, We're Back. The picture book was a great book when I was a kid that I loved. Um, I just love dinosaurs in general. Really, it's always just been monsters. Like, I was a big Greek mythology fan. Um, the Iliad was one of my favorite books of all time as a, as a young person. And um, so I just think the, fasc the fascinating, for me, the fascinating part is, like, where monsters and um, culture kind of smash together and what, what, what happens, you know? The Iliad was your favorite even as a child, huh? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I was a weird kid. I love Greek mythology, I love the Iliad, and I love politics. Uh, All the President's Men was another favorite, even when I was way too young for it. Um, but, you know, kids always read above their level. You know, I don't think I was necessarily that special. I think I just stumbled on it. My mom has always been a big politics person, and she kind of raised me that way. So that's what I got into, too. But kids are always reading higher than themselves. And that's why I kind of laugh when people are like, oh, I don't know, this is like 
complicated topic and whatever. And I'm like, I like, first of all, like, have you read, like, or do you know how Pokemon works? Like, it's complicated. You know what I mean? Like, it's very, oh, yeah. very, very <laughs> complex. Like, I don't understand it. But an eight-year-old can lay it out perfectly for you. And it really does go to show, like, just how much complexity kids are ready to deal with. It's a lot. But we do them an injustice when we try to oversimplify narratives for their sake. They're not, they're not interested in simple narratives. I'll tell you, I've got more questions about Dak to Hills Club, but I know our, our time is uh, flying by and I want to make sure that, that I'm respectful of your time. Uh, and I'd kick my own butt if I heard this podcast and we didn't talk at least a little bit about Star Wars. Uh, yeah. By way of transition, let me ask you this. Daniel Jose Older, do you believe in flying saucers and have you ever seen one? I have not ever seen one. You think they're out there? Sure. Why not? It's a big galaxy. <laughs> Cool. All right, let's talk about Star Wars. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about your take on on Han and Lando, and then I've got lots of follow up questions about about how you how you step into that universe. But let's sure. start there. Well, that shot is um, an adventure story, an adult novel between um, Han and Lando, um, mostly alternating between their points of view. Um, basically, it's after the Return of the Jedi has happened, and you know the the rebellion has been victorious there's a new republic being set up and everyone's sort of trying to deal with the fallout of war and what that means and everything else and um some things events from the past have come back to haunt lando that are basically han's fault so he shows up at han's doorstep being like we got to deal with this actually he breaks his nose and then uh they have to go off on an adventure um to to, to deal with this problem that involves droids and a kind of maniacal surgeon who's obsessed with droids and a, a very mysterious device and uh we jump back into the, the the past era which is basically around the era of solo the movie um to sort of see how all the parts fit together so the, there's a couple of different ongoing threads throughout the book the past era when han and lando were both in their swinging you know ridiculous 20s and this other mysterious character was roaming around the galaxy dealing with his weird droid stuff and this is sort of present tense time when now they're trying to clean up this mess that they made back then and never dealt with correctly. So are you a big Star Wars fan from childhood? Oh, yes. Yeah. Star Wars is definitely my like number one fandom besides dinosaurs and Civil War, probably. So, uh, I, yeah, I, I, Star Wars is like it's tip top for me. Always has been. How, uh, how did you end up in a position to be able to contribute to the Star Wars universe? Because I know you've got characters that are now listed within Wikipedia. You're, you're, you're part of the canon, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely canon. Uh, it started with a short story I wrote for, uh, uh, from a certain point of view, which was an anthology they did two years ago, um, basically telling different characters, POVs during A New Hope um, to mark the 40th anniversary of A New Hope. So that was really fun, obviously, and a huge honor when they came to ask me to do it. And that pretty much led to Lash Out. So an experience like that, when you're, I think uh, your book came out in April and then Solo came out in May. Mm -hmm. Do you get to watch the movie in advance or what research do they open up to you? I was able to read the script in advance, which was really, really, really cool and fun. And um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, they're great. Like, it was a great process. I didn't expect it to be as great as it was, not because I didn't think they were going to be great, but because I thought it would just be a really big pain trying to negotiate all the different things that are happening in that world. Because obviously it's a huge world and both within the world itself and just the industry of it is huge. There's games, there's movies, there's shows, there's books, there's comics. 
which I love because that's one of the things I love the most about Star Wars is that it actually takes its own history very seriously and things are very placed within history. It, there's no there's no book or movie or anything that comes out of Star Wars that doesn't know exactly when in galactic history it's happening. And as a historical buff, I appreciate that. So, but I also knew that would make things complicated for whatever, especially something I was writing, which has like three different time periods in it. Um, it's complicated, but it turned out to actually not be that complicated. They were very cool about everything. Um, they really didn't give me a lot of changes after I submitted the kind of original proposal and things went really smoothly. Are you responsible for honoring not just the, the films, but all of the other novels, comics, and, and, and all of well, the canon of Star Wars? Post-new canon, yeah. So, you know, at, when Disney took over, they decanonized the Legends books and made them Legends books, and now everything after that, which was in, what, 2014 or something, everything after that is canon, everything before that is not. So what I am responsible for is making sure it's within the new canon, including all of the trilogies you know, on film. Um, but they have a story group that's also responsible for that too. So they read every draft of everything that comes through and they give you notes on stuff. So it's not like it's all on me. You know, they're, they're there to make corrections. That's their job. So I assume you can't just write in a scene. I'd, I'd be tempted to have Han working on the Millennium Falcon. And, oh, Kylo, will you hand me that wrench? Oh, the Millennium Falcon fell on Kylo. Oh, goodness. Oh, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose you probably couldn't get away with that. Probably when you not. go to, when you get to read the script in advance, I assume they don't just email you a copy. Do you have to like go in a special room with an armed guard or what's that experience like? Basically that, yeah. I don't know if he was armed, but. <laughs> they, yeah. <laughs> Somebody uh, stood there patiently and, and, and waited for you to finish? They, they, uh, no, it was in like a big, it was actually in the big, one of the areas where they do a lot of the animation. So there was a life-size Ahsoka statue standing right next to me, which was intimidating enough. You know, she had her lightsaber out. Um, but it was also like, it was very fascinating to be down there. It was kind of a dream come true as a lifelong Star Wars fan. And I love the animation stuff that they do a lot too. So I was just kind of like, how am I supposed to focus on this while all this is going on around me? But I managed. I had to be, let, let us live vicariously through you again. To be somebody who gets to know the story uh, so far ahead of, of anybody else, that had to be an absolute lifelong thrill. Absolutely. That's it. Like, it was a lifelong thrill. That's all I got. Um, and then when you uh, go back to the, the page, are you just playing John Williams music in your, in your head and you've got your action figures to the side to act out your scenes before you, you practice? Yeah, yeah, but not in my head. I mean, I'm actually literally playing the Star Wars soundtrack on Spotify. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, that's why I think it was, I don't, I don't want to say easy by any means, but it certainly felt natural to write in that world because I've been, you know, I played with those toys when I was a kid and I've been creating in that world in my mind my whole life basically. So what, it didn't feel like this huge thing that I had to learn. It felt like, all right, I have the base of knowledge. I definitely went in depth to find out more information about the different things I needed, but you know. We could talk about Star Wars for hours, but we won't. I'm gonna ask you one more Star Wars question. I'm gonna ask you a couple of writing questions. Uh, but there was a passage in there that, that, that uh, stuck out to me that I think maybe speaks to some of your maybe philosophy on storytelling. I wanna run it by you. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of addressing uh, our casual racism and, and, and watching the Star Wars universe. I'm, I'm going to read your own book to you, but only for a sentence. Uh, the Beskalist, the Barpa, busted out laughing. So did Sev Kataban, whom everyone swore had to be a distant relative of Lando's. He wasn't, because they looked so much alike. They didn't. 
So why uh, why not just introduce a bunch of of characters of color and and clear up that uh, problem for the Star Wars universe, and nobody is ever again thinking, oh, Mace Windu and Lando, they must be related somehow. Um, why not uh, why not take that out since you're going to have so many characters in in Wikipedia? But you chose to address it directly, and I'm sure you have a good reason for why you did it. And I want to know what that was. Uh, um, it's it's sort of just how I do. <laughs> I might not have a good reason. I hate to disappoint you. It's a great question. Um, I guess you could say that it felt like the most sort of like it. I know it's not. I don't. I want to say it's sly because it's not sly. I mean, obviously you picked it up. But it felt like a sort of innocuous way to slide in there that um, everything maybe isn't necessarily all as rosy and well-maintained as we are kind of given to think sometimes. I mean, it's a similar story like we were talking about with history before, you know what I mean? Um, I don't think like Star Wars, the Star Wars galaxy is somewhere where they've had the same history that this country has had, for instance. Um, but I do think there's a good chance that, you know, characters that don't look alike might confuse each other for each other. And, and then finally, it's like, you know, I think it's always, there's a lot of weird, the whole conversation about what real world elements kind of slip into Star Wars is always really fascinating, I think. Um, and I think it's really fascinating to see how different authors address it and different movies address it. But we, what we can't do is pretend that it doesn't happen because it happens all the time, you know, and I know you were, but I, I think there is kind of an, uh, there people sometimes want to be like, oh, but it's Star Wars, like there's not, you know, it's a total, right, but, but you know, Star Wars has always dealt with xenophobia and, um, you know, different questions of history and things that feel very resonant for this world. Fascism, you know, like um, neo-fascism, particularly in the new trilogy and people worshiping old rules of things, you know, that were devastating to millions of people. Um, I think uh, Claudia Gray's books do that really, really well, like Bloodline, you know, really draw a very clear parallel between the people that worship the emperor, empire, in the new era and like the confederate statues that we still have up in different places like without being like beating anybody over the head with it you can't read it and like pretend that those things aren't in conversation on some level so as the writer i think your job is not to be like oh, racism is bad you know like if i have to tell you that then you're not even who i need to who i'm talking to you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah. if you don't know that then we're not even in the same we're not having the same conversation I think the job is to say, like, here are some interest, here are some dynamics that are at play in our world that can also play out in different ways in a different world. And, you know, where do we see things come together and, and where are they different? Um, yeah, I mean, it, so I guess it's that. It's also that, like, Star Wars, you know, hasn't always been great and is still not great about particularly women of color. Um, you know, we, we've had Lando since almost the beginning, but... Black women tend to not show up at all. When they do, they die within 10 minutes, if that, or it's not a couple seconds, you know? And um, so the, the in Galaxy, there may not be a lot of, like, race problems. Who knows? That's kind of, like, we don't know. But um, certainly in the cinema world, there's a lot of room for growth. And, you know, someone put it on Twitter the other day. Someone actually posted that very line. It was like, this is especially funny because anytime a black character shows up in an ad for a Star Wars movie, everyone assumes it's one of Lando's cousins, which is exactly what happened with the new one. I mean, the, the, the woman might very well be his daughter. I mean, she does like capes, apparently. But it's just hilarious because that is how the discourse runs around it. And so, you know, it shows up. There's a, it's, I guess it's all to say it, there's a lot of conversation to be had between the real world and fantasy realms. And fantasy gets better 
if we can have that conversation in a smart way, again, not in a, like a beating over the head way, but in a smart way that makes us all think more about it and sometimes like recognize things in, in the text. I'm going to say that's where Solo lost me. Um, slight spoiler. Thandie Newton is in the movie, and I, I, I sit down and watch him. Oh, we're going to watch Thandie Newton uh, uh, kicking butt in space. I'm, I'm going to enjoy this. I can't wait to see her in the sequel. But no, <laughs> that was a huge disappointment. Oh, wait, have you got uh, any plans to, to go back to the Star Wars universe? Oh, I do, yes. Um, so it was announced at the Star Wars uh, Celebration event that I'm part of an initiative called Project Luminous. Um, with some amazing writers, um, Kevin Scott, uh, Charles Sewell, Justina Ireland, and Claudia Gray, um, which is basically a team of writers that is working on a new project that we cannot discuss at all in any possible way. But it's happening and it's going to be amazing and it drops next year. And can you confirm it will be set in space? Nope. Nope. <laughs> we'll find out. I can confirm it's going to be amazing. And there will be more info about it in the next, you know, couple of years. Living the dream, man. Come back and tell us about it. We'll live vicariously uh, through you for that one as well. For sure. A uh, couple of questions about uh, writing, and we'll call it a podcast. Uh, but I did want to make sure I asked you about um, uh, promotion and social media, because you're obviously a, a Twitter Jedi. Uh, I think you've got just under 50,000 uh, followers. So what advice do you have for writers that want to build their online platform to be as successful as you are? Um, I guess the best way to put it is be yourself unless you're a dick. <laughs> yeah. There's a better way to put it than that. I mean, no one wants to interact with a robot, with a, you know, with a bot. Um, so if you're just there, like, shilling your books all the time, it's boring and it doesn't, nobody cares, you know. Um, but if you're there being a human and you're dealing with people on a human level, then I think that's kind of how it works. You know, that's what people are there to do is just be human with each other. I mean, as much as that sounds uh, backwards somehow, because it is social media and it's in a way the least human interaction that you could have, it is also very human. And in the, in the, the times that it works best are when humanity jumps out. And so I think as a writer, all you can do is just be real. Um, now, obviously that doesn't mean that you have to tell people what you ate for breakfast, which is like famously what old people think we do all day, I think on Twitter, because <laughs> I always hear like elders be like, I don't nobody needs to know what I ate for breakfast, you know, and I'm like, that's true. So don't tell it. <laughs> we agree. Let's move on. <laughs> exactly. Like we all agree. Right. Um, you know, every writer and every social media participant has to decide where their comfort zone is. And that's an ongoing conversation and that's difficult. But the important thing is you're having it with yourself and, and you're trying to figure that out and that you're not um, just, yeah, just being like, just sort of regurgitating talking points. Like just, it's not gonna fly, I don't think. Um, I think it's like, just be honest and react to things the way you react and have conversations with people and interact and, you know, um, take advantage of the fact that it's, it's a way to be around people without all the social anxiety of being around people. Um, which can really allow you to flourish in, in ways that you maybe couldn't at a, at a regular party. So how much uh, of your time, cause I'm, you know, you're one of those writers where we're, um, I think you're a couple of months younger than I am. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm saying, well, he's got uh, what three books coming out this year. Uh, no, I'm sorry, two, uh, two books coming out this year, plus one in January, close enough. Uh, and then you've uh, got, uh, revisions back on two projects you're working on now. You're getting ready to go off on the top secret Star Wars project that may or may not be set in space. 
how do you find time to also maintain a lively Twitter profile? Because I'll read genuinely hilarious tweets from you sometimes 10, 15 times a day. <laughs> I guess it's not something I think of as like taking a whole lot of time. Like it's literally like, oh, that's, I hate that that just happened. I hate that that just happened. <laughs> no, like that was not even 10 seconds. Like I, I you know, I, I, I look at it as like, I find it, it can, Twitter can be relaxing. You know, if you've called your timeline correctly and if you are in that kind of a mood, it can be very relaxing. So, uh, and and I'm not a, I love shows, but I don't like watch a lot of like TV. So a lot of times when I'm done with something, I'll just kind of like end up pulling up Twitter and then messing around with people on Twitter. Um, and that's kind of just sort of what I do for fun sometimes. It's not always fun. And when it's not, I try to really check out and not be on there. Um, because life is too short to not have fun, right? So it's really about balancing and checking in. But I, I don't, I just don't think of it as like something I, I'm on to do list. It's just something that if I haven't thought about something, I'll post it. Another question uh, about uh, just discourse online, because I do see you um, talking about politics pretty openly. Um, and I wonder what's the, the secret to that, to not dividing your audience and not incurring hate? Because I don't see people tweeting back at you. We hate you because you said that. Maybe that happens and I just missed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so what, what is, how do you walk that uh, tightrope between ticking off some potential readers and saying what you honestly want to say and not being complicit in whatever the mainstream media, uh, narrative is? Uh, you don't. You can't. You, <laughs> I absolutely have people hating on me in my mentions. Um, not nearly as much as, as most women do and particularly black women. Um, I'm not targeted in the same way. Um, but I absolutely get hate, you know, for my opinions. Um, I also think like to some extent people kind of know what they're in for with me. So it's, you know, I'm not usually like surprising people who follow me, they, you know, um, they either know and they disagree. And so they just keep it to themselves or I muted them or something, you know, and I, I don't know, <laughs> or, um, you know, or we have an intelligent conversation. I, I, I say I muted them because when people are jerks in my mentions, I mute them. But I do, I actually really love a debate or an argument, like a good one. Not uh, necessarily on Twitter, but I do love having a really a, a good, smart conversation with folks. Um, I don't need people to agree with me. And I don't think most people need everyone to agree with them. Um, I don't believe in being silent uh, for the benefit of my career, particularly in an age like this. And I don't just mean the Trump era because I've been loud since long before Trump came along. Um, I really mean like the American empire era, I guess. Um, I think it's, I think it's um, important to speak out because I think things are really bad for a lot of people. And I think if you have a platform, um, that's an opportunity to make them less bad on some level. And so it doesn't make any sense to me to try to like live a life or maintain a career where I'm trying to please people who are cool with other people being in misery for their benefit. Um, if that's something you're cool with, you're not gonna like my books, probably. And so you're just not my readership. You can't please everybody, you know? And I think if you try, you end up with really mediocre work for the most part, because you're just kind of gonna walk a certain very mediocre line. And um, that's, that is the path that some writers decide to take. And that's that choice. I don't even, it sounds like I'm judging them. It's just, I know it's not my path. You know, it's not what I'm here to do. Um, and I'm sure there are books that aren't mediocre that make a lot of different people happy, you know. Um, I just think that the, it's a recipe 
there's a very high chance of uh, just writing some kind of like very milk toast, neither here nor there type work if you're just trying to please people. Um, I do try to please people, but I'm also very clear about who I'm trying to please, and that's not bigots. Fair enough. Just get out there, be authentic, and, and say what you came here to say. And yeah, I, and like, you know, we make mistakes. Like, I don't think, you know, and I think that is hard because people do like to pile on, and, and it's, a, it's a complicated and cold world. Um, but also, we learn a lot, and I think if we're listening and we're paying attention, you know, we have an opportunity to really learn from what's happening out in those Twitter streets. I have so many questions to ask you, and I know we're, we're, we're right here at the end of our time. So I'm going to take all those questions and shrink it down to just one. Um, what is, if for all the, the, the writers out there and publishing professionals who are listening, what is the one piece of advice you wish you had when you started writing and that you'd like to share with all these writers? Oh, man. <laughs> Save the hardest question for that. Yeah, yeah no pressure. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I guess I would say that the most important thing is in writing, the most important skill to hone, to hone is um, self-reflection. I think that's kind of behind everything, whether it's career or craft or promotion or anything else. You have to have the power to be self-reflective. Ultimately, that comes, I think, to, to bear it down even further, is that you have to learn how to listen. Um, self-reflection means you're listening to yourself. But uh, listen, ultimately, listening is the most, the one and only most important skill of a writer. Well, listening and being able to put that you know, onto the page on some way that makes sense, obviously. But it starts with listening. You have to listen to other people to learn how to write other people. You have to listen to the world and the different gears that are turning in order to get those correctly on the page. Um, and then you have to listen to yourself and you have to understand when are you close to burnout? When are you pushing your... Um, boundaries in a way that's not healthy for you? When are you writing something that doesn't feel authentic to the story you're trying to tell? You know, all those things are questions that require you to be able to be self-reflective um, outside of your ego, outside of your um, um, ambition. Not that either of those things are like, you can't have ego or ambition. We all do. Um, but you have to be able to step outside them to hear yourself clearly. If you can't do that, then you won't. And that's, I think, when we stumble and fall, including like, what is it? What are our what are our definitions of success for each of us? For each of us, it's going to be individual and different. And that's wonderful, you know, and, but the danger is that if we're not paying attention to ourselves, if we haven't asked ourselves some of those good and difficult questions, um, we will be successful and not realize it and then lose it without even having realized we had it and um, still be trying to be someone else's definition of success. And that is nothing you ever want to do. So I, ultimately, I think it's, it's uh, you know, we listen to ourselves and, and find your path and walk it. There's a great, um, there's, a, there's a, a, a poet, Antonio Machado, who said, um, Caminante no hay camino, se hace el camino al andar. Which means, um, walker, there is no path. You make the path by walking. Se hace camino al andar. And uh, I think that's the best writing advice in the world. Yeah, 
<laughs> you nailed it. I know it was a high pressure question. That was a great answer. Uh, Mr. Holder, this is just an absolute thrill to get to, to chat with you and, and live vicariously with your many wonderful experiences. Thank you so much for okay. carving out the time to, to come here and appear. Where uh, can the, the few esteemed audience uh, members who somehow came here and didn't already know who you are, uh, where can they find you online? Sure. Uh, so I'm, my website is my name.net, danieljoseolder.net. Um, on there, you can find all my books and different stuff like that. I actually just started a, a Patreon, which is Patreon. You can find me on there if you look for me. Um, and then uh, on Twitter, I'm DJ Older, at DJ Older. I, of course, am at MG Ninja. You can find more about me at Middle Grade Ninja. Don't forget to download your free copy of uh, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, make sure you come back here on Thursday when we'll be talking with literary agent uh, John Rudolph. That's going to be another great episode. Um, Mr. Older, I've been uh, asking our guests to sign, off, sign us off. Our sign-off phrase is hiya and what have you. Very ninja-like. Uh, would you sign us off? Yeah. Hiya. What have you?